Today's scripture is Matthew 16:21 through 28. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come and his, with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the, de- the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. Maybe seated. Thanks, Ashley. It's always a joyful experiment having our children be able to to see and participate in communion and something that you know uh, I really encourage you to talk with your children about when you get home. Why do we do this and and even talk with them ahead of time before we do it to prepare them. Just a great occasion for gospel conversations with our kids. So, I don't know if you have ever thought about the difference uh, between being a bargain hunter or a smart shopper. I probably put myself in the bargain hunting category. But uh, the bargain hunter doesn't care about what they buy so much as how little they paid for it. So the smart shopper, on the other hand, is concerned with making a wise purchase, even if it means paying top dollar. So the bargain hunter will be happy with junk as long as the price was cheap enough. But the smart shopper is only pleased with the purchase if there's lasting value in it. When it comes to following Jesus... And believing the gospel, many unfortunately do so with a bargain hunter mentality. Uh, They hear that salvation comes at no cost at all. You know, what a bargain. And they claim Jesus as their savior. But believing in Jesus this way never results in a changed life. Because that person attaches no value to Jesus. He only wants it because it doesn't cost him anything. And yet, there are also those who, like the smart shopper, recognize the price of salvation. They see what it cost Jesus. They see what it cost them in their suffering and tribulation. And yet, it's precisely because of that cost, the cost of salvation, that they value Jesus so much and are willing to lose so much to follow him. 
It's the difference between valuing a free offer or valuing the one who gives salvation freely. The difference between cheap grace and costly grace. Grace that cost our Father in heaven everything. And it's only through that great cost that such a great salvation is possible. That's the paradox of the gospel. That Jesus would triumph through suffering. That he would give life by facing death. That the world would be made whole by the Son of God being broken. What did it cost Jesus to establish his kingdom? And what does it cost us to participate in that kingdom? Let's look at Matthew 16 together. First, let's pray. Lord, as we look into your word, our sole desire is to hear from you. Lord, we want to hear your voice because we know it is a true voice that you speak truth to us. We know that it is a healing voice that you speak truth to what is wrong in our lives. We know that it is a transforming voice that you speak in order to change us. Lord, we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear your voice this morning and to see the beauty and priceless cost that your son gave. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew for some time. And uh, the Matthew, along with the other three Gospels, are, are part of the opening part of the New Testament that tell us the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And specifically, how God is launching his kingdom through what Christ has accomplished in his life death and resurrection. And as we've been looking at Matthew, uh, we're getting closer to the end of that gospel now and things are kind of starting to heat up. Uh, Last week, we looked at Peter's confession of who Jesus is, how he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, which is a turning point in this book. Uh, His disciples are finally clear and convinced on who Jesus is, who this person is that they've been following around, that he is God's Messiah, his anointed king, his Christ, which means that God's kingdom is finally now going to be established. They get to see it happen. They they get to see all of these promises for a new day begin to come true. The hope of salvation from their enemies, the hope of salvation from their sin, the hope of all nations is finally at hand because God's Messiah is at hand. And so what will it take for this Messiah to establish that kingdom? And what does it look like for us to be a part of it? Those are the two questions that now Jesus begins to address in our passage this morning. And we'll look at the first one in verses 21 to 23, the cost of establishing God's kingdom. What does it cost Jesus to establish God's kingdom? Matthew 16, 21. From that time meaning since the time that Peter has made his confession that Jesus is the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What is it going to cost Jesus to establish his kingdom? 
Nothing less than his own sinless death and resurrection. Which is not exactly the picture you think of when you think of a triumphant king, is it? It seems a bit weak and powerless. It seems kind of like evil's actually the one triumphing. It doesn't really make sense to us. And it didn't make sense to Peter either. In fact, Peter's actually pretty offended at what Jesus says. It sounds to him that Jesus is conceding defeat before the war has even begun. And so Peter attempts, uh, attempts here to correct Jesus. To He pulls him aside as if he's going to enlighten him onto how he's misunderstood what's actually happening here. He says uh, quite strongly, he took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But listen to Jesus' response in verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I'm pretty sure the last thing I want to be called by Jesus is Satan. It's just not how you want to be known. So, so why such a strong counter-rebuke? What is it that Peter's missed? What is it that Jesus is saying? Well, Peter, in his opposition to Christ's suffering, is, according to Christ, adopting the perspective of the world. He has set his mind on the things of man. He's looking at Jesus and his kingdom according to the categories and values and methods that this world gives him, which causes him not only to miss the point, but to actually become a hindrance to what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus calls Peter a stumbling block. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. So, so the rock on which God is going, on which Jesus is going to build his kingdom a few verses earlier is now a stumbling block. He's more like a boulder blocking the path. That's the imagery. And so what does this world actually think it will take to achieve victory, to triumph, you know, winning and success? What, what is the mindset that Peter's bought into and that is now regurgitating uh, to Jesus? Uh, of course, you can describe these things in a lot of ways, but I think three values that tend to drive humanity's basic approach to coming out on top would be survival, satisfaction, and glory. Those are the three values that drive us to succeed, to win, to triumph in life. Uh, first, you have to survive. Which sounds kind of obvious, but it, it's pretty critical. If you don't, if you don't survive, you won't be long and around long enough to actually be satisfied or enjoy the glory. And, and I mean, this is how it works on the playground. If you're playing, you know, dodgeball or Gaga or something like that, if you don't first survive, you can't be around to win and so you have to stay in the game so it is in life suffering and death those are a roadblock those are a hindrance to what we want out of life and so we must minimize those we have to preserve ourselves we have to survive and you know it's interesting you look at the millions upon millions of dollars that our culture spends on trying to hold on to life trying to stay young you know our gym memberships and our cosmetics and our our, our medications and all these things, which are not 
necessarily bad things, but we put an awful lot of attention on trying to hold on to our youth and health, don't we? We want to survive. But of course, the goal is not merely to survive, it is to win. We don't just want to survive, we want to be on top. We want to succeed and find satisfaction in life. We want happiness, we want joy and fulfillment. And we can find that in all sorts of things. Each of us has a, has a slightly different way of defining what does it mean to really arrive and succeed in life. Is it a certain job or a certain relationship or certain possessions of the car, the home, the clothing, certain accomplishments, the grades, the music, the sports, getting into a certain college, having a certain number of kids. Each of us sets our different standards according to what's in our hearts. And if we're around long enough to survive and actually find that satisfaction, if we achieve it, then we are said to have arrived then we receive the glory that we look for. Uh, we're crowned with glory. People praise us for what we've accomplished. They, 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 uh, they envy us. They want their kids to grow up and be like us. And that's, what, that's kind of what we want in life. Because when we do eventually die, at least we're leaving a legacy of our glory, right? Which is about all we can leave. Even though that legacy is only three generations away from oblivion for most of us. That's the goal. We need to survive so we can be satisfied and get the glory. Those are the driving values, but but how are those values achieved? How do we attain them? What are the predominant means for accomplishing those goals? Well, according to the world. And I think two things, power and control. First, it takes power to survive. That's why we call it the survival of the fittest. You need to have power. And we wield that power in order to achieve our satisfaction and glory. But power must be coupled with control because it makes no, it's it's no good to have the ability to do something without the opportunity to do it. And so we have to take control as well. Take life by the horns. Uh, Take things into our own hands so that we can accomplish our goals, even if that means using people or marginalizing people or whatever way we try and get them out of the way. These are the ways of the world. And this is kind of what Peter thinks is going to happen now that he's convinced Jesus is God's anointed king who will reign victorious. He's thinking, "Okay, so where's the army? We need power. Let's go Show Rome who's boss. And nothing is going to stand in our way now that we've got God's anointed king. And so when Jesus speaks of suffering at the hands of wicked leaders and of dying, Peter doesn't have a category for that. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense in what he knows about how you get things done in this world. Surely Jesus is mistaken. That's the opposite of what we're supposed to do. And if we're honest, we kind of sympathize with Peter on this one. You know, because that, you know, how it worked for his world is how it still works today. We think that, you know, if you're going to get things done, then you need power and you need control, and then you'll find the satisfaction and glory you're looking for. Peter's mind is set on the things of man. But Jesus has come to accomplish the plan of God. And unlike the world, God's plan is accomplished through weakness, not power, 
by giving up control to wicked men. Think about that. It's marked by self-denial, not self-satisfaction. By death, not self-preservation or survival. It's marked by shame, not glory. In fact, there was no more shameful way to face death in the ancient Roman world than on a cross, executed like a criminal. And we don't really have a good parallel for that today in our culture. You know, uh, forms of capital punishment that are still used today, like electrocution or, or lethal injection and such, they don't, they don't actually capture the scorn and shame associated with crucifixion. It's a lot more like hangings in the Wild West where you drag the criminal to the outside of town and you string him up for everybody to see, even the kids walking on their way into town, as a shame and a deterrent to anybody who would want to follow that criminal's ways. That's the kind of public humiliation and scorn associated with crucifixion. And it must be this way, Jesus says. When he says to them that that he's going to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed and rise. He's not just predicting what will happen. He's saying what must happen. It is necessary that he go to Jerusalem and die. This is according to plan. As Peter later explains to the crowds in Acts, after these things have happened and and he now gets it, he says, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was according to plan. This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. it. So so why is it necessary that God's anointed king would die and rise again? Isn't there some other way to bring the kingdom that that's less embarrassing or ugly or painful than this why is this the plan is there any sense in this paradox if you've ever had mold in your basement or on your walls uh, you know that you can't just paint over that mold or just throw up another layer of sheetrock in front of it you know to hide it because unless the mold is killed and unless whatever was spoiled by it is cleansed, that mold is going to continue its destructive work and spoiling work. Only when you deal with the mold and kill it and then cleanse everything infected by it are you at a place where you can actually rebuild and repair that wall the way that it's supposed to be. Well, in a similar way, this world is spoiled by sin by human rebellion against God. What God designed for humanity in the beginning to to relate to him as father, his children made in his image, to reflect his character, to represent his kingdom as his joyful servants, filling this earth with his glory. What, What God designed in the beginning was spoiled and corrupted by our human rebellion against God and his rule, such that Every human heart is now filled with sin and every human relationship and human institution is stained by sin and its effects. Even the creation itself has become subject to decay because of our rebellion. And so unless you cleanse what is spoiled and kill that which is spoiling it, 
You can't start over and rebuild it the way it was supposed to be. And so Jesus came to die for sin. He came as our sinless savior to take on himself all the rot of this world. So every broken promise, every act of violence or abuse, every selfish plan, every word spoken in anger, every act of defiance or disobedience against God, every careless mistake, even just the the, the stupid things we do, every trace of evil, Jesus took it on himself on the cross to kill its power and to cleanse us from its effects. He did it by giving his life as a ransom for ours. And so on the cross, the mold of sin was burned up and destroyed by the holy anger of God's wrath. Sin was killed and its effects are able to be cleansed through the blood of Christ. And with his resurrection on the third day, that new creation is now sprouting. God has has begun his renewing work. He will complete it when Christ returns in the end, but it's already at work in his people by the Spirit. Through faith in Christ, relationship with God, reflecting God's character, representing God's rule, all the things he wanted humans to, to be and to do in the beginning is now possible again because Christ is our representative. Because Christ has dealt with the sin and its effects. Life will now triumph over death, not by avoiding death. That's how we think that that we'll triumph over death, if we can just avoid it. Jesus doesn't triumph over death by avoiding it, but by going through it and conquering it, defeating it through his resurrection. The reason that Jesus calls Peter Satan in verse 23 is not because Satan somehow possessed Peter for a moment or something like that, but because by opposing God's plan for Christ to suffer and die, Peter is playing the role of adversary. He's tempting Jesus with the same temptation that the devil gave him back in Matthew chapter 4. The temptation of a crown without a cross. All the glory, none of the cost. Peter's a bargain shopper. He wants all the glory with none of the cost of suffering. What will it cost God's anointed to establish his kingdom, to reclaim this fallen and rebellious world for his own? Nothing less than his own death and resurrection. It's not survival, satisfaction, and glory achieved through power and control, not the things of man, but the plan of God. Triumph comes through suffering. The cross comes before the crown. And so what does it look like for us then to participate in that kingdom? If that's what it costs Jesus to establish it, what does it look like for us to share in it? That's the next question that Jesus answers in verses 24 to 28. So look at verse 24 with me. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, if you want to be part of this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross 
and follow me. And so the death and resurrection of Jesus is not only the power for salvation. It's also the pattern for living as members of his kingdom. What it cost him to accomplish it is what it costs us to share in it. In contrast to Peter's man-centered take on things, Jesus spells out what a gospel-centered approach to following him looks like. And, and there's three things in this verse. First, it's denying self, which is opposed to seeking our own satisfaction in life, our own, you know, putting our own dreams and, and desires on the throne as opposed to God's dreams and desires for his people. So it's de- denying self. Second, it's taking up our cross instead of preserving ourselves and trying to survive. And then third, it's following him in humble and joyful submission wherever he calls us to go. Sometimes we speak of taking up our cross uh, in terms of kind of putting out the Christian vibe, you know, letting people know that you're a Christian. So we, we take up our cross and represent Jesus, whether it's through a T-shirt we wear or a bumper sticker on our car or, or, or just even a conversation. And that's a good thing to do. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. So it's not just letting people know you're a Christian. Uh, other times we talk about it in, in terms of how we all have our crosses to bear, you know, some sort of trial or difficulty. And some of us have names for those crosses and such and in our relationships. And, and, and we joke about that about how there's always a trial in our lives or some sort of difficulty. And again, those trials can be very real and very painful. But that's also not what Jesus is talking about here. Where was Jesus headed when he took up his cross? To Calvary. The call to take up your cross and follow him is a call to die. It's a call to die to self to die to sin, to die to this world and follow Jesus. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And again, that is is absolutely counterintuitive for us. Um, Largely because we're so wired to look for life and significance in this world through our careers, through our families, our hobbies, our achievements, our sinful pleasures. We define satisfaction and success in terms of what the world can give us, and then we bend everything at at holding on to those things because we're afraid if we let go of them, we'll somehow be losing out or missing out on something valuable to us. If we do anything with Jesus, the the temptation is just to kind of squeeze him in somewhere. Maybe he can help us achieve our dreams and, and something like that. But Jesus shows us that it's actually the world's pattern that is illogical. Now, we think we look at this and we think it doesn't make sense what Jesus is saying. But what he then turns around and tells us, it's actually the world's pattern that is illogical and doesn't make sense. Verses 25 to 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life, his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? 
the things of man make sense to us. But when we cling to them and we clamor for control, we're actually saying no to Jesus and God's plan through him. Which is the truly illogical path. It's stupid in at least three ways. First, none of the stuff we're clinging to and looking for life in can actually satisfy us and give us the life we're looking for because none of it can last. Even if we were to gain the whole world, what value would it be in the long run if in gaining it we have to forfeit our eternal soul? There's no logic in that path. Second, once forfeited, there's nothing in this world valuable enough to buy it back. If you were to turn from Jesus and following him and gain the whole world instead, what among your gain can you actually give to buy your soul back? Nothing. Only the blood of Christ is precious enough to purchase your soul. And so if you reject that in this life, there is not a second chance in the next. As Jim Elliott, the uh, missionary to the Alka Indians, or as they're now known, the Waldani people of Ecuador, and martyred by that tribe, as he said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's the logic of the cross. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. Everything in this life that I think will find value in but will ultimately burn, I can't keep it. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And that's the third point. There is great reward for losing everything for Jesus. A reward that does last and does satisfy even beyond the grave. There is true victory and glory in joining Jesus in his death and shame. Because there will come a day when everything that looks like weakness and foolishness in the world as we follow Christ, where that will be shown to be the power and glory it truly is in Jesus. There will come a time of vindication for Christ and for those who follow him to death. Verses 27 to 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Those who rejected Christ and those who follow Christ. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now these verses are notoriously difficult in the Gospel of Matthew. What in the world does it mean... uh, The coming of the Son of Man. What is that referring to here? Is this Christ's second coming, his physical and visible return at the end of the age? Well, what Jesus is talking about here, he says, will happen within the lifetime of some of the apostles. So that's probably not what he's talking about here. Uh, Is it the fall of Jerusalem, you know, later in in 70 AD? That's one idea out there, possibly. or is it what we call the transfiguration in the, in the very next passage, in chapter 17? Again, that's certainly possible. Uh, for what it's worth, my own take is that what Christ is referring to here is the glory and vindication that comes from his resurrection and ascension. 
where he comes with the angels in the glory of his father and receives dominion and a kingdom. The imagery of this son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and so on, coming with his kingdom, comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's where Christ gets this phrase, son of man, that he likes to use to refer to himself so often. And, and in that chapter, it's a vision of, quote, one like a son of man, someone in, in human form, who stands in place of God's people in their suffering at the hands of foreign nations, the beasts that are earlier in that chapter, but then who is ultimately vindicated from that suffering before God's throne and joins God in his heavenly reign. So Daniel 7:13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God's throne, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and, a, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting divin, dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And, and so as we think about how in the world does Jesus fulfill these verses... Like so many Old Testament prophecies and promises, there's an already and a not yet aspect to Jesus' fulfillment. Um, this passage is, is used in Matthew later on to describe Jesus' second coming, his return um, in victory and judgment, something that has not yet happened. So there's a not yet part to this promise, but it's also used to describe his resurrection and ascension, how he appears before the Father and receives all authority in heaven and on earth and can therefore send his disciples to go to all nations. Hear the echo of that language from Daniel in Matthew 28, where he receives that from his Father, something that has already happened, though not yet for the apostles. And so the point here is that there will come a time when Christ and his suffering are vindicated. They are, they are seen to be the triumph that they truly are. A time of vindication for Christ and his followers, for those who willingly lose everything to follow him. In other words, there will be a crown. There will be a crown for Christ and a crown for those who follow him, which we will promptly throw at his feet in worship. If we don't believe that, if we don't believe that that there is glory coming, if we have a low view of the resurrection, whether Jesus' resurrection in the past or ours in the future when he returns, then we will grasp at this world for life and significance. Without the crown of the resurrection, the cross is a defeat. It is a bad ending. That's why Easter is so important. But because of the hope of the resurrection, because of the crown that waits, we can say with Paul in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And again in Philippians 3.10-11, through 11, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Following Jesus means dying to self so that we can truly live. So that we could truly live. So what does that mean for us personally? And then what does it mean for us corporately as a congregation? Well, personally, it means that we need to ask some hard questions of ourselves. You look at a passage like this, it's not a comfortable experience. And and so we need to, to ask, am I really willing to lose everything to follow Jesus? Or am I a, a bargain shopper? You know, I don't care as long as it's free. Do I believe that if Jesus were to call me to leave my career or to sell my house or my car, or if that he were simply just to take those things away, that I would still have enough because I still have him? Do I believe that? What is it that I cannot bear the thought of losing that I must save at all costs such that it actually gets in the way of me following Jesus and laying my life down for him? Where is it that I say, Jesus, I will follow you this far, but no further? That's where I draw the line. And why is it? Why do we draw those lines? What is it we're afraid of losing in this world that can actually compare to Jesus? What am I not believing about the sufficiency and satisfaction of Christ, about the glory and vindication to come? What am I treasuring more than Jesus and being found in him? We need to ask ourselves those hard questions. And we need to ask God to renew our affections for Christ, to see him as he truly is in his incomparable value, in his majesty, his holiness, his love, his mercy. So we need to ask those questions personally. We also need to ask them as a congregation. Are we willing to lose everything as a church to follow Jesus? We've been asking God to make us a gospel-centered community living each day on mission for Christ. That's been our theme, our vision. And we praise God for ways he's been answering that prayer. We've been talking a lot recently about living on mission, about making disciples for Christ, right where we live and work. But sometimes I wonder if we've gone in our, in our talk and our planning and our training as far as we can go without it actually costing us something. Even when it's God's plan that we want to see flourish, the advance of the gospel, we're still tempted to think in terms of the world. We want the crown of glory. We want the crown of seeing people come to Christ, but we'd rather avoid the cross in getting there if possible. Are we willing to radically reorient our lives for the sake of the gospel as a congregation, as individuals to die so that others might live what might jesus do through a congregation that is willing to lose everything to follow him think about that 
The cross comes before the crown. Following Jesus means dying to self so that we can truly live. Let's pray. Lord, would your spirit be at work in our hearts to that end? Jesus, would you lay our hearts bare to reveal what it is we hold on to? What it is that gets in the way of of giving everything for you? Would you reveal those idols, Lord, and would you give us the grace to destroy them? Not that some of the things we cling to are bad things, but they're not you, and that's the problem. Lord, may we put the good things of this world in their proper place and no longer treat them as God. And Lord, you know what those things are in each heart, and I pray that your spirit would be at work to reveal them. And Lord, in that revealing, would you at the same time be reminding us of your cleansing and sufficient grace? Lord, thank you that you love us despite our idolatry and rebellion. Thank you that you are at work in us. Even though there are things we hold on to, you're still gracious to work through us and in us. So Lord, may we take seriously your call to die. And may we look with joy on the sufficiency of your grace to actually take that step and die, Lord, and to take it again and again and again. Lord Jesus, we are your people. We belong to you, and we need you to do that work in us. And so we pray that you would renew the affections of our heart to see your Son, and that this congregation would be salt and light in the Metro West, that we would die to one another, uh, die for one another, Lord, uh, in, in laying our lives down to serve and love one another, and that we would die uh, in our service and love to the world so that you would be on display, Jesus. Lord, we pray that for our ministries in this congregation, for our student ministry, for our men's and women's ministries. We pray, Lord, for the summer missions trip to Detroit. God, would you raise up your team the adults, the, the youth that you want to go on this trip, Lord. And would you prepare the way for them to, to go and to die, to learn, to serve, to lay their lives down? And would they bring back with them great lessons to help us learn what does it mean to really lay our lives down in love for others? We pray for our, our Easter celebration coming up, Lord. Lord, would you be at work Uh, to awaken a desire in people's hearts to come and to hear your word proclaimed. Even though for some of them it's just the traditional thing they ought to do, would you you awaken them and would you awaken their souls to hear your word and to trust you? Lord, would each of us be willing to uh, love our neighbors, invite them? We pray for the Seder meal that that would open our eyes in fresh ways to the significance of your atonement. And Lord, we pray for our missionaries who are laying their lives down across the globe. God, would you be with them to strengthen them in every way. Thank you for Lynn Stapleton, uh, for her work in Myanmar. And we pray that you would be with her as she gives her life away to teach. And Lord, we get to hear from her later this morning. Would you uh, help us know how to pray for her better? as we partner with her in the advance of the gospel. 
We pray for those among us who are hurting, Lord. Those who do have crosses to bear, who would much rather uh, not have to bear them. The different pains and difficulties we face in life, Lord. Whether financially or relationally, emotionally or physically, God. And you know what those burdens are. And we thank you that, that your cross is sufficient to, to carry the weight of our burdens as well, Lord. That you are with us in our suffering, in our trials. And so we ask that you would be with, by your spirit, those who are recovering right now. For Davis Bates and Nancy Bates. For Suki. For Jackie Griffith and her back pain. God, would you give her relief. For Harry Richards. We pray for those who are facing upcoming surgeries, Lord. For Leah. For Mary Boy. And we pray for those with the long battle of cancer, God. Would you smite that sickness in each of their bodies and bring healing and deliverance? God, we pray for Mary, for Ruth Hepp, for Bob Norcross, for Bob French. Lord, you are powerful. You are good. We pray that your will would be done and that we would love and serve you as those who are willing to die to self and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.